rightfully so, because he is the centerpiece of this whole thing. Uh, amen. Uh, we are we are here, and we, we have so many other things that, that take our time and attention, and so many other neat stories to capture us, but really the central focus is of Jesus. But as you know, and I need not remind you, but I will, uh, th- he's that way every day of the year. Uh, he is the centerpiece of all history. So I want to look this morning at the account of, uh, of Mary, uh, Luke's account of Mary, the angel coming to Mary, the call in uh, verses 26 through uh, verse 38. And part of my desire, I'll go ahead and tell you, is that uh, to, to deal with uh, this, I feel not just outside and just a general statement, but with my own self. And that is simply, I think we are traditionally underwhelmed in America with the Christmas story. And I think we're overwhelmed uh, with all the distractions. Uh, the rise of endless events, the um, familiarity with the biblical accounts, and the endless Hallmark movies tend to fuel our ADD for something new and shiny. Uh, and it's not just in our children, it's in us as well, if you would agree. Uh, and with that, we, we keep looking for a new twist and a new angle that, that is uh, yet to be un, uh, uncovered. Uh, and it affects us as a church as well because we deal with the same text every year. And I had a great sermon I was going to preach this week and next week. And I said, that would be great. I'll, I'll preach John 1. So I decided in, in, uh, out of wisdom to go look and see what I preached last year this time. And guess what it was? Man, John 1. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a good idea, Pastor Ed. So uh, he actually got me to date my sermons. Uh, but anyway, that's not true. <laughs> but dealing with the same text, we we struggle with what we should say, something new or something different, something uh, fresh. And we do want to say uh, those things that are fresh sometimes we fall into one category of saying too much for too long of a period taking you know uh, months to deal with the christmas story and and at other times we can be honest we just kind of miss the whole thing and then the congregation you would be like uh, you think our pastor knows it's christmas uh, steve eckert has a, a nice christmas sweater on so i i understand it is almost here uh, with that uh, it just out of self-preservation, one of my attempts has been to avoid genealogies. Uh, and that's just selfish, I know that. Um, but uh, with that, uh, the burden of trying to, trying to stir my own heart and my own affections for the amazement of what Christmas truly is. As I said, it's easy to be overwhelmed at a lot of things at this time of year. Uh, schedules, seasons, how many dinners can you actually fit in in the month of December, right? and still walk uh, and fit into your Christmas clothes, your Christmas sweaters, right? And all of that that we tend to be overwhelmed with gifts and, and numbers and names and lights and, and travel and all those things. But I think we as Christians in the church, uh, if we're to be overwhelmed, it ought to be at God himself. Uh, we ought to be overwhelmed at the whole reality of what this means and what it stands for. Uh, that Christ has come. It isn't something new that we need. It is, a, it is a reminder in the boldness, really the confidence, and that what God has already given to us in his word and the Christmas story is still, is still mysterious. 
It is still deep. It is still good and it's still life changing. It is still something that causes us to wonder at a star and shepherds and angels that that sing or proclaim. Some of you wonder if angels sing or not. Uh, proclaim the glory of God in the highest is the, the lowliness of Christ becoming flesh. Now, year after year, we visit this theme, whether we do it uh, from a pulpit perspective, we, we visit it and and year after year, we have to shepherd our own thoughts to bring back and to think deeply that it truly is an amazing thing that Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. Just to borrow a little bit from first from John 1. Well, this morning I, is my desire that we might uh, we might be amazed again, uh, at least a little bit stirred at the accounts given to us here in Luke's gospel as he begins to uh, really lay out the foundation of who Jesus is and what he's done and why all of this matters and he does so but as we get into verse number 26 through 38 I want to just invite you to pray with me for a moment father we thank you for the spirit of God we thank you for the voices that you've given us we thank you for the minds and and lord we thank you for we thank you for the promises. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us this morning. Help us to see clearly again uh, uh, with clarity who Jesus is uh, and to be affected not by great speeches or, or big lofty words, but by a great God and a big lofty event. And so we just pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, the account in front of us, beginning in verse number 26 through verse 45, is this, the encounter um, that Mary has with the angel. It gives us some substance, some, some kind of baseline of, of how all of this took, has taken place. We, we don't have this news in Matthew's account, but here Luke takes the time to kind of work it out and, and let us know why the angel would come to Joseph in Matthew's gospel, and so we... Uh, we have it uh, clearly given to us. But the beginning of this, and I want to read verses 26, and, and let me just read a little bit of this uh, just to, again, refresh our minds with this passage of Scripture. And some of you could probably close your... I'm not going to tell you to that I'll think you're sleeping, but you could probably close your eyes and read along in your minds. It's so familiar to us. And the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin... Uh, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. Now, there's more of that we'll look at in just a moment, but I want to just remind you at the very outset of this, as we look at verse number 26, is it just solely to this passage, but he reminds us in this whole encounter that, that what we have in front of us is God's visitation. And by that, I simply mean the movement in the passage is a movement from heaven to earth, from God towards us. Grace is always defined in those terms. In fact, it turns our human attempts and our religion kind of upside down because uh, human religion and, and 
all the other things that we boast in is trying to to say that we need to go from earth to heaven. We have that in the Tower of Babel, don't we? When we uh, see man saying to himself, let's just build a tower and reach the heavens. We'll, We'll make our way to God somehow. And yet what we find over and over, the folly of that, the the foolishness of that kind of thinking. Morality and religion in itself kind of boasts that idea that sinners need to become more, better, greater than what they once were. They need to achieve more, work harder, do more in order to receive favor from God and see God's hand move in their way. And yet what the Bible teaches us is something completely different. That it has always been God moving towards us. Favor is always rooted in his action, his initiative, not ours. In fact, our movement towards him is really in response to that great work he does. We see that from the very beginning uh, as Adam sinned in the garden. It was not Adam looking for God in the cool of the day, was it? Some of you familiar with the, uh, the Bible account, it was Adam who, when God come looking for him, hid, as it were, not as it were, hid, literally afraid because he had sinned against God. It was God who came looking for him. It was God who, when, when finding him, drew out of him the confession of what he had done wrong. It was God who, in Adam's case, killed the lamb to cover his sin and give a promise that I will reverse what you did through the seed of the woman. We find that over and over through our Bibles that it was God who comes moving towards us. And no greater event is seen than in the incarnation of Christ, the Son of God. We know it's it's God moving towards us for in one way, in the practical sense, we would never invent this and never make it up. God coming in the plan and in the favor in which he has bestowed upon us, moving towards us. Isaiah reminding that that great statement of Emmanuel, God with us, and it is with us because he is moving in our direction towards us. There's great joy found in that because left to ourselves, we would never move towards him. Amen? Never. Grace is defined as God's movement, his movement towards us. It was Gabriel who was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. But secondly, I want you to notice, not only is God movement towards us, it is, it is his movement towards us which surprises us by grace. Uh, to put it another way, I think Mary uh, captures it well when she uh, praises God in verses 46 through 56. Uh, when she speaks about him visiting her, he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. I just want to ask you the question, have you ever been surprised by grace? I would say if you have not, you you don't understand what grace is. We we at times can think of it as a transaction between equals, a transaction between men. We merit a little bit, we get a little bit of grace and favor. But what we see in, in the word of God, what we see in the coming of Christ is something completely different. An unusual, unexpected, a grace that surprises us. Over and over God surprises us without doubt, but but even more so when we come and see his grace given to us. It's displayed towards Mary as we read that the angel comes from God, but where does he go? A city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, in some ways, we 
ought to be shocked just a little bit because it is God's favor, his goodness, his mercy, his grace coming to a young virgin girl, maybe 13 to 15, some debate what her age may have been during that time. And, but she's poor. She's from the backwoods of nowhere, a place not looked well of and out of her own Jewish culture and people. And this is where God chooses to come and the way he chooses to come to, to really change the world to a young girl named Mary who's engaged to a poor guy named Joseph. It's unusual. It's surprising. And yet we, we find it refreshing now, some of you, like me, might think, well, it is good because we read at the opening of the gospel account that, that the angel Gabriel goes to Zacharias, and we would expect that, wouldn't we? He's a priest, he's, he's a gentleman, he's, he's holy and pious, and he's longing for a child, and, and we would expect God's favor to be extended there, but, but to a poor girl from nowhere? I would not so quickly turn, but I think we should turn that on our own selves and see God's favor extended to us and not to have a little bit of surprise. As we said, Mary overcome with this, overwhelmed with this, as she begins to sing praises. And she says, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She's saying, she said, he didn't just see me, but he has looked towards her, this, this, and all that would seemingly be unattractive by the world's standards, unimpressive, un, unimportant, and yet God's favor looked on her, not just to see her, but to move towards her in a way of grace and a display of love to use her and to bring his son into the world. Again, praising God, she says in verse number 52, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Isn't it true that many times we are not overwhelmed by God's grace, surprised by it, and why the proud and the self-important in our world are not impressed and marvel at the grace of God is because their own shadow is too big. It stands in their way. It blocks the view of this kind of favor towards us. It, it, it again brings us back to this transaction between equals. And yet what we see is something completely different. And I would say it in another way is that those who have come to know God and worship him and, and see him for who he is stand amazed that we have that right and privilege and joy of doing so. Failure in our society, is that the world has forgotten who God is. We don't stand amazed because he is not, he is not seen as, as he truly is. And because we have lost that knowledge of God, we have lost the ability to marvel at him. He's not that impressive. Oh, but when the Spirit of God opens our eyes, we see a different picture, don't we? Large... <laughs> Enormous, holy, good, just, loving, kind, outside of space and time, all powerful, all might, all present, and yet we see favor move towards you and me. 
Well, we should be overwhelmed by that. Paul reminds us in his own life as he sees God's grace in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, it is by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that it was within me. What, what is he saying there? He, is, he in himself is overwhelmed by the grace of God. Surprised at the fact that he's all that he is, he sums up his life by, this is God's goodness towards me, nothing that I've earned. Nothing that I've earned. Well, we stand amazed at that. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Philippians 2 as we marvel just a little further. Philippians 2. Beginning in verse number 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? Yeah, we have already asserted that the centerpiece of this whole thing, of life itself, is Jesus Christ, the, the very Son of God. And here, trying to help us see a glimpse of what that means, he says, who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equally God, equality with God a thing to be grasped. You see him explaining to us the humility of Christ, but also in explaining the humility of Christ, he by all rights was equal with God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity full of glory and majesty, worshipped by his creation, uh, sustaining the world or holding the world together by the power of his word, the Bible teaches us. Here we see in our world, in, in history, kings and, and really crazy people claiming for themselves some kind of deity. The Babylonians did it, the Persians did it, the Greeks did it, the Romans did it, uh, emperor the emperor is Lord, the emperor is some divine being, but they were all phonies. They're all frauds and, and forgeries. They had no right to that claim, but here this one man, this one Jesus Christ had all rights to that claim. But he teaches us here in Philippians 2, he did not covet it, he did not hold on to it, he did not demand it, but rather he took upon himself the form of a servant. It is our desire and our ambition to better ourselves, isn't it? We don't want to go down. We want to go up. And what do you see him becoming like us, becoming a servant? Why so low? Why did he humble himself and take upon the form of a servant? Why become obedient even unto death? Well, quite simply because we could not come to him. That's what the gospel teaches us. You and I could not go to him. And so he comes to us that we may know him. He comes to us that he may rescue us. He comes to us. But isn't it remarkable, even as we speak about that, sometimes our mind goes, and it is true that it goes that way, uh, that it goes to Jesus coming into the world to save the broken and the outcast, the downtrodden and, and the humiliated to come and save the abused and the hurt. But the Bible teaches us he does more than that. 
He humbled himself so low to, to come into the world to save sinners, the Bible teaches us. To save those who are guilty, those who are unbelieving, those who are proud. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He humbled himself, uh, not just in the case of those we think he ought to show favor to, but those who were his enemies, those who were against him. And, and really all of us fit into that category. We come to a, a moment where uh, we, we reflect our minds on Christ becoming flesh for the very reason to save those who opposed him and those who were far from him. You and I ought to often, as we think about our own salvation, we ought to think about it with surprise and wonder. How could a God love as he has loved those who he has loved? And we might think it as we think about other people, right? How in the world did so-and-so ever make it in? But I want to tell you, as we come to understand who we are and who God is, we ought to think that about our own lives. How in the world could God love people like me who has sinned so great as I have sinned? He brings a child into the world to redeem sinners, to save his people from sin, he tells us in Matthew. But that saving his people from sin implies, at least at this point, that he has come to save me from my sin. How could he love in such ways as that? How can we not be amazed at this whole, whole theme of Christmas and the coming of Christ into the world? Such favor, such grace on, on those who, well, are undeserving. And yet what we find is he comes. Not only does he come, but he comes to us with favor. Thirdly, I want us to see, not only do we see the favor of God surprising us, the grace of God which surprises us, but notice beginning in verse 28. But she was greatly troubled at the saying of verse 28, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And you can imagine that, right? <laughs> uh, greetings, O favored one. Usually angels were not always the most welcome visitation in the Old Testament in some encounters. Uh, what do you mean I am favored? And he goes on and says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. And of course Mary said, How will this thing be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Uh, I was working through this in my own mind, and, and I guess for those of you who like short points, I don't have been remarked how every word has to be the same or letter, but I don't have that. But I do want to notice when we speak about the favor of God, it's pointing us to a face, to a person. Even here in the angel coming to Mary saying that you have found favor with God, the angel is pointing her to Jesus. 
that all of the hopes of Israel and all of the, the messianic prophecies, all of the promises that God has had is, is coming together in this one person and you're going to give birth to him. And you talk about overwhelmed. I mean, that's just an amazing concept altogether. But not only that, we, we see in the person of Jesus, even in some of the, uh, the language here, that not only will all of the promises be fulfilled in him, but all of our expectations, our deepest longings is found in this one person, Jesus Christ. As far as the promises go, it would, would be him, the son, whom Genesis teaches us would come from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He would be the, the seed of Abraham with all the world would be blessed by. He would be the greater son of David and sit upon the throne of David, as you see even in our text here in verse 31 and 32, and the end of, there will be no end of his kingdom. And over and over in the, the prophets, minor prophets and the major prophets, referring to hope and restoration and healing and, and all of the joys culminate in this messianic person, this messianic prophecy, this one son, and his name is Jesus. 400 years of silence, and God breaks the silence with news that all of his promises all of the words he has spoken to them, all of the hope that he had given for them to hold on to, he has not forgotten. Aren't you glad, aren't you glad God has a good memory? You know, I could, you could tell me something, like if you tell me your name and I'll walk away and forget it. I'll say it three times, I could tell you to say it in a sentence and I'll walk away and forget it. And some of you will too, right? God does not forget his promises. Mary would be reminded that all of the promises of God will be fulfilled in this one son. He would be son of the Most High. He would be the, the son born, uh, Emmanuel in Isaiah 9, the child born, in, or child born in chapter 9, called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the branch in chapter 11, filled with the Holy Spirit. Over and over, the references to this one person would be here. He is here. We're given not just an, an anticipation of some kind of personality or, or a future kind of glary, faded figure. He's pointing us to the clarity of Jesus Christ and who he is, the significance of this one person. But not just in the promises God has fulfilled, but also in our deepest longings. It is in this one person that true peace will be experienced. We live in a world filled with chaos and turmoil. And in fact, we find even at the end of the age, there'll be those crying out, peace, peace, but there will be no peace because true peace is found in Christ. He has come that we may have peace with God and the forgiveness of our sins and that we may have peace with one another. And you may not see the fullness of that manifested now, but, but one day we will see the culmination, the reality of what that peace means when we see a new heavens and a new earth. And nothing that is defiled will enter in. We will enter into the rest and the peace given to us through Jesus Christ. Is that a great promise for you and me? 
even in the chaos of our time, even being overwhelmed with all of the distractions that, that our minds focused on Christ and focused on his promises and his presence, there is even in that an unexplainable peace which we experience. As we read in Philippians chapter number 4, but not just our longing for peace as we see our streets being burned down, but really our longing for joy. Imagine joy without, without rebuke. Joy without, you know, people go out and do stuff today, don't they? And they have regrets. A little too much happiness sometimes. A little too much fun and all the other stuff that goes along with that. A lot of things that the world offers comes with baggage. There's a pleasure in sin for a season, but we know the, the end thereof is destruction and death and, and rot. And yet there is a joy found in Christ, a true joy, full and pure, that, that, that has none of those things attached to it. In fact, it is so overwhelming that when we see us entering into the presence of God, he says, enter into the joy of the Lord. And his presence is fullness of joy. You know, we may not be looking for that necessarily, but something about us, something part of who we are really longs for that. We want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. We want our purpose. We want to be, have meaning in life. All of that is restored and found in Jesus Christ. Outside of him, you're beating your head against a wall. You're running around in circles. But in him, we find all of those things restored to us all of our deepest longings. But note also with me, I want us to see verses 34 through 38. Not only do we see the person of grace in Jesus Christ, but we see we see the mystery and the power of God revealed to us at the very beginning of our of the gospel account. Mary asked a very uh, reasonable question. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Verse number 37, for nothing will be impossible God. How many of you believe that this morning? Mary asked, how does this work? She was a virgin. The angel reminds her, not in these words, but essentially says to her, not by human intervention. It would be something that would be done by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God. It's remarkable. And some, surely when they come and read this, they might assume or at least claim that this is such an endearing story. And, uh, and it's nice. We know being sensible people in our day with, with the technology that we have and all of the science that surrounds us since it is kind of in charge anymore. And we know all that, that virgins cannot give birth to children. That's not a, like a, a, a very hard thing to grasp, a very hard thing to, to grab a hold of. And, and while we can hold on to this in some ways for its sentimental value, we just understand these things don't happen. 
full. It's true they don't happen, do they? You should nod your heads at that. Have you ever heard of anything like this? If you have, there's something else going on. You should probably read a little further. We don't expect these things to happen. It's not natural. But that does not mean it didn't happen. And sometimes we feel like when we, when we come to, to God and his ability, his work, it all has to be explained real easy like a math equation. And what you see here in this encounter of the gospel is that God, you're just not going to get your arms around him. When you got him all figured out, he surprises us. He's much bigger than we had first imagined. God affirms for us here that the intervention of man's predicament takes a divine act. And only a divine act can save us. And it is done so here in the giving of uh, of Jesus, the conception. Reiterating that, he says in verse number 37, I like that. Why don't you just read it out loud with me? For nothing will be impossible with God. I don't know, you may need to hear that this morning. He's a lot bigger than our problems. And he's a lot bigger than we first thought. We are surprised by grace, and surely if that is true, then we're surprised by God himself. And let me just remind you, our Bibles does not start in Luke. It starts in Genesis, doesn't it? And over and over for 39 books, 39 records, he has shown over and over that he is able to do the impossible. Over and over to, uh, to see him who does what cannot be done, what is humanly impossible. And just, to, just an encouragement as we come to the story of Christmas and a virgin giving birth to a son, only God could do something like this. Now let me just give you uh, one last bit of application, I think, and, and maybe an encouragement and we'll pray. Notice verse 38, Mary's response. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so the angel departed from her. You know, we've been going through Hebrews chapter 11, and, and I almost wanted to preach this in the fashion of that, and I did not. Uh, I repented and, and tried not to do that. But look at, the, look at the encounter we have. Mary, given this overwhelming message, this young Jewish girl, given the news that she would give birth to a Messiah, not because she knew a man, but through the power and the miracle of the work of God and her submissiveness to God. Let it be as you have said. Let it be as you have said. And really, that is our only response when we hear God speak to us. We hear the word of God clearly. Our response ought to be, let it be as you have said, Lord. Let it be according to your word. But notice also with me in verse number 46 and on through her response, and I'm hoping that this is something that my own heart will capture, maybe yours as well, over the next week. Not only was she submissive, but she was worshipful. She was overwhelmed with all that had gone on, God confirming uh, the work that he was going to do in her by this visitation to Elizabeth. And as soon as she walks in the door in Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth breaks out and praising God for this. The baby's jumping in her womb. 
And wouldn't you think John the Baptist, wouldn't you like this on a test for those of you in school? When did John the Baptist start testifying and witnessing to who Jesus was? That's a good question, isn't it? In the womb. In the womb. Out of all of this, God proving his word true to her, confirming it through this visitation to Elizabeth and seeing what God has done there, she breaks out her heart, overflows in worship. Notice the, the words with me. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. It exalts him. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Verses 48 through 56 is nothing but a, a continual declaration. A song describing the mighty acts of God. And she's overwhelmed in him. And, and in that overwhelming state, she sings to God. I just remind you, our theology is not just meant to be debated and written down in books and taught in classes. Those things are true, ought to be done, but it's meant to be sung. We're meant to sing our faith, and, and we see that not just here in Mary's account. We see that as, as Moses experiences the deliverance of God and the, and the uh, army of Pharaoh being drowned in the Red Sea, he breaks out singing. Him and Miriam. Hannah, having her prayer answered, breaks out in praise to God. As we come and contemplate who God is and what he's done in the person of Christ moving towards us, it ought to fill our hearts. It ought to fuel and, and give fire to our worship. I say those words kind of... Uh, Whatever, however you want to say that. But it ought to impact us, ignite our emotions. We sing and rejoice because at this time of year we're reminded there is a great deal of things to rejoice in and rejoice about. Because we have found favor with God. Because he has become like us to save us and redeem us. We sing because he has done a mighty act and great things for us. Holy is his name. To say it another way, there's no one else like him. He goes on in the song, verse number 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Well, as we prepare our hearts for our Christmas celebrations and our families and all the things that's going on. Uh, we do so not really looking for something new, but I hope in some ways by being reminded of the depth of the trueness of the beauty of already what God has given us. And not read over those accounts so quickly, but walking through little by little being reminded of his movement towards us when we could not. And if we're honest, when we would not move towards him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your grace to us. We just pray that you would be magnified in our celebration, both as a 
congregation as we meet Christmas Eve service and then following Christmas, the 26th, Sunday morning. Lord, you be magnified and honored in our midst, but, but in our hearts. Worship is an overflow of, of our hearts caught up and reminded of who you are and what you've done. And truly, there's no greater reminder of that this year than the giving of your son for us and becoming like us. And so we just praise you for that. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.